All right, good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. And um, if I don't know you yet, um, looking forward to getting to know you. Uh, my name is Roland. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's a privilege to share this word of God with you today. Guys, to um, begin this series, <clears throat> um, we started last week um, with a message by Pastor Cole, and it was called Mercy, Mercy Me, um, really considering the mercy of God towards us. And um, today we're going to do the second part of this series, which is Mercy, Mercy Me, showing the mercy of God to others. Showing the mercy of God to others. So not only do we have a need to receive the mercy of God, but we need to be people who absolutely demonstrate with our lifestyle and our times the mercy of God towards others. And so, um, again, as we came out of this past week, uh, many of you were able to participate in Ash Wednesday. Uh, some of you uh, <clears throat> were able to uh, participate in that moment to begin the Lenten season. Uh, and we are also going uh, this Tuesday, actually, into Super Tuesday. So you might uh, like think about how are those two connected, but it's connected through our message. We need mercy, right? <laughs> we need mercy as we're going into this uh, new season of uh, even the political cycle. And uh, we can remember the words of Marvin Gaye where he said, mercy, mercy me. You know, things ain't like they used to be. Oh, no. <laughs> but we need the mercy of God. So let's go into the word of God today um, together as we begin. God, we thank you for your word to us today. God, we thank you for um, your mercy expressed towards us and that it's a transforming mercy. And God, we're asking you that as we begin to reflect on the mercy you've shown us, God, we're praying that it would transform us and spill over in our lives in the mercy that we show others. Lord, we're asking you that you would unlock the lack of forgiveness. We pray that you would unlock the judgments. We pray that you would free us, Father, from the hindrances that keep us locked up in our lack of expression of love towards others. And God, we pray that we would walk out of here clean and free by your blood in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today, if you're um, going to be taking notes, we're talking about um, showing mercy to others. And we're going to talk about it in three parts. We're going to talk about uh, the fact that there is a great expectation. Number two, that there's a great realization that we all need to have. And then finally, that there's a great reconciler who enables us to walk in this great mercy that God's commanded us to walk in. Great expectation, the great realization, and the great reconciler. So to begin today, we're going to start by talking about the great expectation. And so that nobody leaves here... Uh, confused about the expectation of God. The great expectation is that we live a life where we show the mercy of God to others. Can everybody say amen to that? And it's not just mercy as we would do it <laughs> or mercy as we feel like other people deserve it, but we have got to get to a point where we're actually demonstrating and showing the mercy of God that we ourselves have received to others. Now, the reason that we say that is uh, primarily because of uh, a familiar scripture to many of you, maybe not to all, um, but it's a scripture found in the book of Micah. And um, Micah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and if you're not familiar with him as one of the prophets, uh, he was a contemporary of a more familiar prophet named Isaiah. And when Isaiah was uh, prophesying, uh, they were both prophesying in the southern kingdom of Judah at the time where Israel and Judah had been divided. And whereas Isaiah was prophesying um, in the courts 
um, in the high places of uh, Israel. Uh, Micah was more of a commoner where he was prophesying by the Spirit of God and the Word of the Lord to the general populace. And so what he was saying is um, just as important as what Isaiah was saying because they were um, both prophesying by the Spirit of God, but he was speaking in a vernacular that was very relevant to the everyday man and the everyday woman. And the thing about it is, is that in the midst of him prophesying, he also had the privilege as the uh, man of God to also predict, uh, as we talk about often at Christmas time, the actual birthplace of the Messiah who came, Jesus Christ. You see uh, that that was one of his predictions. But he was prophesying at a time when there was a bit of peace uh, for Judah. But what happened over the course of that time is that there was a lot of... Uh, unrest that was beginning to arise because of the social injustices that were taking place in the midst of the land. Uh, there were all types of um, corruption issues uh, within business practices in the government and um, otherwise. And we see that it's often familiar to us as we're dealing with these things, even as people are talking about them on the landscape that we face here in our country. And so Micah's prophesying to these things and he says this, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? And what he was talking about here is the people are trying to figure out a way that in the midst of their sin, they could be made right with God. And at this time, they were trying to think of all these sacrifices that they could make to make themselves feel pious or pure. And they were unfortunately getting into the practices of the pagan culture around them where they were even attempting to offer their children as sacrifices um, to their gods. And so he says, the fruit of my body, should I offer that for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? When God's talking about what he requires of humanity, he says, I'm not interested in all the sacrifices that you try to make before me to show yourself pious or pure, but obviously the ultimate gospel is fulfilled only in the righteousness that we received in Jesus Christ himself, what he would accomplish for us on the cross. But beyond that, what's our responsibility? And he said, our responsibility is threefold, to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. So when we talk about the idea of the great expectation, we've got to understand that God's number one expectation is that we very specifically, beyond having faith in Christ, that we live a life that number one, does justice, but number two, loves kindness. And another word for kindness, the Hebrew word used here was mercy. So when you hear the word mercy, you're also hearing about the kindness of God that whenever God's demonstrating his mercy towards you, he's also using this word that's used interchangeably for kindness. And I don't know about you, but growing up um, in a religious setting in the uh, Bible Belt South, I saw a lot of people who were religious but didn't have a lot of kindness about them. 
Anybody know what I'm talking about? They had a whole lot of piety on their lips, but as far as their treatment of their fellow men, even their own family members, friends, or the society around them, they were often considered spiteful. They were often considered condemning. They were often considered those who were judgmental towards others and more so looking to point out people's faults rather than helping them through them. And whenever God's talking about what he expects of us, he's expecting us to show the kindness that he's expressed towards us, towards other people, whether we feel like they deserve it or not. Mercy is not treating someone as their sins deserve, but in fact, it's withholding from people that which they actually deserve. We spent a whole series talking about the amazing grace of God, where God was giving us through Jesus Christ what we don't deserve. When we're talking about mercy, however, and God's commanding us to love mercy, he's calling us to love a lifestyle where you're actually withholding from people the judgment that they deserve. And oh, is that not a hard thing in this life that we're living? Now, mercy, withholding from people what their sins actually deserve, we're required to show mercy to others because we're commanded in the gospel to be imitators of God. Once God sets us free by his word and his Holy Spirit, then he commands us to be an imitator of himself. And what that means is, is that regardless of our natural attributes, no matter our idiosyncrasies, no matter our personality types, no one can resign to being defined by the shortcomings that used to identify you in the past. We're called to be lifted to a higher place. God's character is described this way in Psalm 103. If you look in verses 6 through 14, you can just um, listen to this. It's a God describing himself. Pastor Cole made mention of this last week when he was talking about Moses' encounter with God. But King David repeats this in talking about God on high. And he says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious. So if we're going to be imitators of God, we've got to choose to find a way to, in our lifestyle, in our interaction with others, be merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. Does that help anybody here? Slow to anger. Anybody have a temper in here? Or am I coming out of a temper? Let's put it that way, right? Because we're in church, right? You left that behind at the door. Okay. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Here's the beauty. He will not always chide, meaning he's not going to always accuse. Nor will he keep his anger forever, meaning he's not a grudge holder. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust." And this is the place and this is the type of attitude that God calls us to when he's talking about relating to other people. He is expecting us to demonstrate the mercy of God towards others. 
Now, what we need to understand, and a lot of times people will discount this idea of mercy because they're more justice-oriented, right? Has anybody ever said that of themselves before? Listen, I'm not mercy-oriented. I'm justice-oriented. I want to see somebody pay, right? And sort of like, that's fine. Other people could be merciful, but they've got the gift of mercy, right? I'm more so the justice of God. I'm going to hold people to account. Well, here's the truth. Here's the truth. Whenever we're talking about mercy, it's not at the expense of justice. Does everybody understand that? The first thing that God talks about whenever he says, what does he expect of us, is that we would do what? We would do justice. That's the first thing that he says. But justice, you must understand, is in the hands of God. And he does not, unless you are a delegated official in this land, holding a badge or sitting on some court bench, it is not up to you to enact justice towards other people. It is your responsibility to pray for justice, advocate for justice, but then express mercy. You understand? You pray for justice, you advocate for justice, but then you express mercy. Why? Because according to James, he says, judgment without mercy is for the one who shows no mercy. Judgment without mercy is for the one who shows no mercy, but mercy ultimately triumphs over judgment. And it's also the truth that humility is a prerequisite to walking with God and having any type of lasting, life-giving relationship with others. You've got to have humility about you. We think that a lot of times we're just being righteous by demanding justice from, from other people, but all it's doing is masking our own pride. It's masking our own pride and giving us the idea that we have the right to look down on others because we ourselves would never do the things that we're holding others to account for. But if we're going to have humility, then we're going to be able to walk in the mercy of God towards others. It's so hard to live this way, though. When we are offended, we've been violated, overlooked, and mistreated time and time again. And that's, just not, that's not just talking about on a societal level, that's talking about on a personal level, right? If you're in relationship with people and feel like you've been treated like any type of doormat, you might have seen this before. People in your own family who are treated like a doormat or you feel like yourself, somebody's trying to take advantage of you. It's hard to want to express mercy towards others with this great expectation if you feel that way. But the truth is, is that we need to have a great realization. There's not just a great expectation that's placed upon us. We need to have a great realization. And the great realization is that we are no better than those to whom we need to show mercy. We are no better than those to whom we need to show mercy. We are quick to condemn people for things which we should be condemned for. Is that not the truth? We are quick to condemn other people for the very things that we should be condemned for. How do we know this? Well, Solomon, who was a very, very wise man, called the wisest man in all Israel, no man was wiser before him or came after him, except obviously Jesus, the incarnate word of God, right? It said about his words in Ecclesiastes 7, 21 and 22. Tell me if this helps you like it helped me. He says, do not take to heart 
all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Has anyone ever been in a situation before where you were so enraged with somebody and their gossip and their slander or the like and how they were speaking about others and outside of their presence that you began to get enraged at them? And you were like, I can't believe they're talking about this person this way. Or how about this? You were like, I can't believe this person is such a slanderer. Not realizing that when your buttons were pushed, with another person, you were talking about somebody else that same way. Has anybody ever been there before? Has anybody ever complained about a boss? Maybe you have a managerial position in your workplace, but you have somebody that you report to and you are complaining about your boss, not realizing that at the same time you were complaining about your boss, those who were reporting to you were complaining about you for doing some of the same things that you were complaining to your, about your boss about. Anybody ever had that happen before? These are the things that happen. It's sort of like, listen, the judgments that we place on others, we feel so righteous. Or how about in marriage, right? Have you ever gone to God before about your spouse and said, God, you need to change them? and not realize that the very thing that you're complaining to God about, he's trying to turn you around and actually have you repent about to your spouse. That happened to me all the time. Let me tell you, this guy, Jim Critcher, I'll tell you a little bit of secret, this secret about this guy, Jim Critcher, who's coming. Yes, he's a great minister, but he also did our premarital counseling. Years ago, he did our premarital counseling, and I was a young man. I was a prideful man. Not saying I don't have pride now, but life has buffeted me. <laughs> I've been shaved, okay, in many ways. <laughs> and I remember going into my premarital counseling with a list because I was determined to have a good marriage. And I remember having a list of all the things that this man of God needed to help my soon-to-be wife get over so that we'd be able to have a good grounding for our marital bliss. And I took that list to this man of God and I said, hey, I just want you to know I came prepared. <laughs> Been thinking about a few things and here's the things I think we need to work on with B. <laughs> yes, I did say that. <laughs> and he looked at me <laughs> and he looked at B and I'm sure he was marveling at the fact that B didn't just get up and walk out then and there. <laughs> but he said, why don't you go ahead and put that list away? And he looked at me, and for the next several months of my premarital counseling, it felt like it was all about me. <laughs> because he was kicking my bottom over and over again about my pride, about my issues, about all the judgments I was making to my soon-to-be wife that really needed to come back towards me. I didn't have a proper mirror up. I didn't see all the issues that were going on in my own heart that God needed to fix before I could properly love and serve this wife of mine who would be given to me as a gift. And oftentimes, that is the posture that we have. 
We don't have a realization that we're no better than the very people that we, need to, that we seem to readily cast judgment upon. And I think that it's why Leo Tolstoy, you know, if, if you're a, a literature advocate, he said this. He said, everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing themselves. This generation is very action-oriented, and I love it, right? Let's go out there. Let's, let, let's think about how we could be socially conscious. That's great. But everybody's pointing the finger at everything that everybody else needs to change, not what I need to change. Not what I need to change about myself. And I think that this album cover tells us why this man was so popular. Now, some of you are too young to appreciate this, but go to a wedding and you'll hear him. You will hear him played. And remember, on this particular album, Bad, he actually had a song called Man in the Mirror. Remember that. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have ever been clearer. If you want to make a world a better place, take a look at yourself and make the chance. Right? So the th that's right. We understand, we understand that to be true, right? That we need to look at the man or the woman in the mirror. I've been looking through the Hobbit series, right? Anybody like the Lord of the Rings in here? Well, we've gone back and also read the Hobbit series with our children. And the thing about it, we're watching the movies again. And I think of what Gandalf said when they're dealing with Saruman. He says, Saruman believes it is only great power that can hold evil in check. We want to fight fire with fire many times, right? But Gandalf, the great wise wizard, said, but that is not what I have found. I have found that it is the small, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. That if people would get to the place where they actually love the mercy of God, that they understand it as an expectation from him towards them. And then they begin to say, I'm no better than the very people that I would look to judge. Then they can give themselves to the actual small acts of kindness and love that will change what we want to see changed in others because it first changed us. Now the thing about it is, is that that's a tall task. That's a tall task when we're trying to do it in our own strength. And if we're only trying to muster up mercy or kindness in our own hearts. Some of you might be thinking to yourself, listen, I want to be kind, but I've got a lot of bitterness in my soul. Anybody ever felt that way before? I just feel wake up angry. Angry all the time. Well, listen, you are not alone. That's another Michael Jackson song, but I won't go there. Okay? <laughs> You're not alone in that place. We need the great, great reconciler, and we must be transformed by the mercy of the great, great reconciler to be able to show the mercy of God to others. That's the truth of the matter. It's not just an expectation that he lays on you, especially when you've been through things, especially when you've seen things that you shouldn't have seen in the design of God. And because of the fallenness of humanity and the sin that surrounds us all, we've all been affected by sin yet he still calls us to show mercy in the midst of that sin to others. And the only way that we can actually show that mercy is to be transformed by the mercy of the great reconciler. 
to know his mercy towards us and then therefore have the liberty to give it to others. And I think this was clearly seen when Jesus on the cross, Jesus on the cross was with two criminals. And these criminals had two responses to Jesus. But Jesus' response encapsulated all that God himself required of humanity. When you look at the cross of Jesus, you see the justice of God. You see the justice of God being paid. God said that he had to be the one who is both just, dealing with the sin of humanity, and we know that the wages are what we earn for sin is death. What we earn for sin is death, and you see it in a microcosm, in a, on a level, when, whenever we're sinning, right? Whenever you're harsh towards another, whenever you lie, it brings death. To that relationship, right? Whenever you commit adultery, it brings death to that relationship. Whenever you backbite or slander, it brings death to that relationship. When you lack forgiveness, it brings death. But then there's also an ultimate price to pay. But here's the good news of the gospel. On the cross, Jesus paid the justice of God by taking the sin, the penalty for that sin on, of humanity on himself. Now, people say, well, that's justice, and, you know, people could go scot-free and not ever deal with the wrong that they've done. Well, that's not true. That's not true, because here's a prerequisite to coming into that mercy of the cross. He said, repent. Repent, turn away from your sin, and believe the good news. You don't get to go on sinning, doing those same things for which we deserve judgment if we want to come into the mercy of God. We've got to turn away from it and believe the good news, put our trust in the fact that he's done for us what he did for us on the cross. And here's the justice of God. If people do not come into that mercy through repentance and faith, they will pay the penalty themselves. And the justice of God will be enacted upon them. You understand that? And people will get what they deserve. What, here's the thing. That means that nobody gets away with anything. You hear that? Nobody gets away with anything. The violations that you've experienced, nobody's going to get away with it. Oh, also, the wrong we've done to others, nobody gets away with it. Either Jesus has paid for it on the cross or we're going to pay for it ourselves. Does that make sense? But on the cross, it was also evident that he was expressing mercy. Why do we know this? Luke 22, 32 through 34 shows us this. He says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, meaning Jesus, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. In the midst of Jesus being crucified, Jesus completely innocent, completely innocent. None of us can say that, but Jesus can. Jesus, who was completely innocent, and being crucified, not for his own sin, but for the sin of humanity, my sin and yours. Jesus is on the cross experiencing the justice of God that really belongs to us 
but he was going to be both just and the one who justifies those who come to God through faith in him. And in the midst of that, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. Showing mercy towards people as he hung dying. That is the standard that he has for us. That in the midst of wrongdoing, we would still express that mercy. Why? Because what Jesus said of those who are crucifying him is often true of those that we hold judgment towards today. Is that not true? Many times people are shaped by cultural and experiential histories that drive them to living a life of sin and they don't even realize it's sin. They don't even realize it's wrongdoing. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, let's flip the script here. Have you ever been accused of something before by someone and you were like, I didn't even know I was doing anything wrong? Anybody ever say that before? That used to be me growing up all the time. Listen, I didn't know. And then I just got used to saying that. It's like, well, I can't believe you. You know, it's like, listen, we're all in that place sometimes, right? That's why there was a burnt offering in the Old Testament for known sins, but there was also something called the guilt offering. The guilt offering, meaning that people were still held responsible for their sin, but it was sin that, of which they weren't even aware. A price had to be paid for both. And when Jesus is up on that cross, he is paying the price for not only the burnt offering for transgressions, he also becomes the sin offering. The sin offering for humanity. Saying, Father, forgive them because they don't even know what they're doing. And if I'm going to express mercy towards people, I've got to understand. Sometimes people only are living out what they've been taught, what they've seen. You've heard the old adage before, hurt people hurt people. Anybody heard that before? That's true. That's sin described. Hurt people hurt people. That's sin being passed down. But the mercy of God says, hey, listen, you've got to express something towards them by, letting me understa um, by understanding what I understand about them. Sometimes they don't even know what they're doing. And Jesus, in his great humility, as we know the story goes, would later offer forgiveness, not to the one on the one side who was still railing at him, but to the other who said, Lord, when you come in your kingdom, please remember me. On the cross, Jesus would show that mercy. When we meet the great reconciler, how are we to be transformed by him? We're to be transformed by him in the same way that he demonstrated mercy being expressed on the cross. And I would say it's four ways and then we're done. It's number one, to consider, to consider if I'm going to live a life of mercy towards others, I need to consider that the offending party may not be aware of the wrong that they're committing. That's on an individual level. That's on a societal level. They may not be aware of the wrong they are committing. Has anybody ever thought about that before? 
Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they do. Number two, if they do know. If they do know, because sometimes people do know what they're doing and they choose to do what's wrong anyway, right? That's called a transgression. That's what a transgression is. When you see that word in the Bible, it's knowing what we should or should not do and doing what's wrong anyway. And if they do know, how do we show them mercy when they know better? Did God ever show us mercy when we knew better? That's a question. Did you ever do something before that you knew better than to do or not to do and God still showed you mercy? Thank you. (laughs) Then he expects that treatment towards others. And if they do know that they're doing wrong, remember that it will take an act of divine intervention to transform a heart marred by the cultural and experiential forces that have shaped them. It will take God stepping in to change their hearts to enable them to do something different. What that means is that people are slaves to sin and Jesus has come to set them free. If you know that people are stuck in transgression and he's telling you to show mercy towards them, you need to be an intercessor for them. An intercessor for the one that you would otherwise look to judge. Isn't that what Jesus was doing on the cross? He was interceding for those who were coming to kill him. We need to be an intercessor for those who even know the wrong that they're doing. Number three, when we're interceding for them, we need to also ask God to help us forgive them. Ask God to help us forgive them. You see, when Jesus was praying that prayer, Nobody was asking him forgiveness as he hung there on the cross. You realize that? And a lot of times we have this idea that the only time I'm going to forgive anybody is if they come groveling to me. Anybody ever thought that way before? Unless they humble themselves. Oh, I'm going to hold them down. They better not come by my door, right? But who does that really end up hurting? Does it really hurt the person who's not thinking about you again, going on their way, continuing to sin with other people, the way that they sinned against you? Does it really hurt them, or does it actually hurt you? I would submit to you that it's actually hurting you. When I choose not to forgive somebody, pardon and release them, then what's happening is that I'm bound up and I'm continuing to suffer the effects of their sin because I won't release them. And so it holds me captive when they're able to metaphorically go free. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, I'm paying the price, but I'm asking you, Father, forgive them. I'm making a way for forgiveness. I'm releasing them. Providing a way for release through what I'm doing on the cross. And Jesus not only hung on the cross, but he died and was resurrected. And the final point is, what, how do we live a life of showing mercy? Is that when able, we communicate the why of the gen, um, demonstrated mercy. That the offending party may meet Jesus at the cross through the gospel just as you have. When you start to 
think about showing mercy to somebody else. And though they deserve your wrath, just like they deserve the wrath of God, you show them mercy instead. People are going to ask the question, why? And sometimes the, the way that you actually get to living a life of mercy is actually not just secretly having mercy towards other people, but actually communicating it towards others. Listen, I know you deserve to be treated this way, but I'm not going to treat you this way. Why? Because, listen, I know I'm no better than you, right? Going back to the other part of the message. I know I'm no better than you. I know that except for the grace of God, except for the mercy of God, I'd be doing the same things. I'd be doing the same things. The only reason I'm not is because God's transformed me. And Jesus has set me free from the inside out. And you know what? Listen, I'm going to release you and he can transform you too. Let's go to the cross together. And as you begin to communicate that thing, let me tell you something, it actually empowers you. And I am not saying that the things done against you do not make you a victim. But it makes you, it empowers you to be more than just a victim whenever you begin to show mercy to others. You hear me? Do you hear me? It does not mean people have not done wrong to you, but it means that you are sort of taking through the grace of God the reins back and saying, now I'm an advocate for someone else's soul that was bound just like I was. And now he could begin to set me for, um, them free just like he set me free. And this is why we need the great reconciler. It's only when I meditate on that, pray about that, give myself to that again and again, that the power of it can actually work in me. And so in summation, there is a great expectation that God has for all of us. And it's not just to receive his mercy, but it's to show his mercy, the mercy of God, not your mercy, but his mercy towards others, just like he's shown to you. It can only be done, though, with, when there's a great realization that we're no better than those we would look to judge. And the good news is, is that the great reconciler, the great reconciler in Jesus comes to transform us and empower us to show that mercy towards others, just like he's shown towards us. It's only at the cross of Jesus that we truly receive the mercy that we so desperately need. By him paying the price for our sins, we are granted the pardon we do not deserve. And when our souls are flooded with and transformed, we're born again by this reality and we're empowered to offer the pardon that we've received to others with the same reconciling mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so guys, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go back into worship and I'm gonna ask you to have a moment with God. Even as we have our communion moment, we're asking you to have a time of reflection. And it's not hard to think about life. Some of you have a, a replay button, sort of a loop that's going on in your minds of the things that have been done to you and the sin that's been committed against you over and over again. And you find it difficult to get to a place where you're not just the offended party, but you're the one giving mercy towards others. But I believe God wants to empower Saul today. Empower Saul today to once again, and hear, hear me on this, it's not just a one-time thing, it is a process of continually bathing in the mercy of God. 
so that we could be overflowing with his mercy towards others. But we need to at least start somewhere. Let's, as we worship, think about the mercy that's been expressed towards us. Pray for the mercy if you've not entered into it. And then ask him to empower you to demonstrate it towards others. In his name.